Welcome to Come Follow Me, Deep Dive. This is where we take a chapter-by-chapter approach to the scriptures that are assigned by the Come Follow Me curriculum of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. My name is Barry Hillam, and I hope that this podcast will be a benefit to you. In each episode, you will hear a short flyover summary for the scriptural chapter in question, followed by a verse-by-verse reading that is supplemented with commentary from parallel passages of scripture and from modern-day prophets. You might consider adjusting the playback speed in your favorite podcast player. With that, I'm glad you're with me. Let's get started. Alma, chapter 23. This chapter opens with a discussion of the proclamation that was introduced in verse 27 of the previous chapter, where we read that the king sent a proclamation throughout all the land amongst all his people who were in all his land. This, of course, is the newly converted king of the entire Lamanite kingdom, Lamoni's father, who probably went by the name title King Laman. So as this chapter, Alma chapter 23, opens, we learn about the content and the intent of this proclamation. We learn in verse 1 that it said that the people should not lay their hands on Ammon or Aaron or Omner or Himni, nor either of their brethren, who should go forth preaching the word of God in whatsoever place they should be in any part of their land. Now, we might remember that when this proclamation was introduced in verse 27 of the previous chapter, the chapter actually did not come to a close at that point, but instead Mormon took us on a diversion or digression from the storytelling narrative. He provided us with eight verses that discussed and related many of the geographical features that we've read about thus far in the Book of Mormon narrative. While this passage did seem like a break entirely from the story that was being provided to us at the time, we can now see as we begin chapter 23 that our enhanced understanding of the geography of the region helps us to appreciate the scope and the breadth of what is now happening as we come to chapter 23 and discuss this proclamation. It's here that we fully realize that the sons of Mosiah now have complete freedom to move about the Lamanite kingdom. And as verse 2 will say, the sons of Mosiah should have free access to the houses and also the temples and also the sanctuaries of, again, the entire Lamanite kingdom. This includes all of the Lamanite cities that we read about in this narrative diversion at the end of Alma chapter 22, and still more, and they'll be accounted for in this chapter. The intent of this proclamation, as it's explained into verse 3, is that owing to the freedom that the sons of Mosiah will have, the word of God might have no obstruction, but that it might go forth throughout all the land, that his people, meaning the king's people, might be convinced concerning the wicked traditions of their fathers, and that they might be convinced that they were all brethren. We can guess with that statement that King Laman was referring to the divide that existed between the Lamanites and the Nephites. In his converted state, his attitude about this divide had changed entirely, and he became interested, as the end of this chapter will tell us, 
he became interested in opening a correspondence with the Nephites, being friendly with them and considering them brethren. This attitude will be reflected most dramatically when the king decides also at the end of this chapter to change the name of his people. He decided that they would no longer be called Lamanites, but that instead they would be called Anti-Nephi-Lehi's, and uh, we'll come back to the meaning of that name. But suffice it to say here that the name itself uh, reflects a desire on the king's part to have unity between the Lamanites and the Nephites. We will see that between the beginning of this chapter, where this proclamation is discussed and expanded upon, and the end of the chapter where the people of the king change their names and open up a correspondence with the Nephites, that a critical pattern is followed, and one that is really not to be missed by careful readers of the Book of Mormon. We saw the same pattern with King Benjamin's address. We saw it as Alma the Elder gathered followers at the waters of Mormon. We most certainly saw this pattern with Alma the Younger as he preached to the people of Zarahemla in Alma chapter 5, those of Gideon in Alma chapter 7, those of Melech in Alma chapter 8, and ultimately among the believing segment at least of those of the city of Ammonihah in Alma chapter 15. And the pattern is this. We can see in each of these instances that after the people's hearts are changed by the word which is preached from prophets, their conversion is not made complete until they have entered into a formal agreement with God. This, of course, is done through the ordinances and covenants of the priesthood, beginning with baptism. These formal agreements or covenants that are solemnized through the authority of the holy priesthood and that are ratified through the performance of specific ordinances, again, beginning with baptism, are the way for these converted people to fully and formally access the incredible transforming power of the Lord Jesus Christ. This same pattern, in fact, is powerfully laid out in the New Testament. It's most certainly one of the main reasons that we're presented with four iterations of the same story. In the four Gospels that are written by the synoptic writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then by John. The intent, I think, is that we come to the end of reading those four Gospels, being utterly convinced that there most certainly is a Lord Jesus Christ who has this marvelous transforming power, and who most certainly is disposed towards the marginalized and does desire to extend this power and this transformation and this conversion to all mankind. This is embodied in the phrase that I've mentioned a few times uh, lately in these readings, take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So we are utterly convinced after reading these four Gospels that Jesus Christ, the promised and now exalted Messiah, has the power and the desire to save and transform us all. The next question that should come from this is, how then do we access this transforming power? And then, of course, we turn the page to the book of Acts. And the book of Acts tells essentially the same story that we will read here in Alma chapter 23. It's the story of the Lord Jesus Christ's authorized priesthood messengers 
moving throughout the land, organizing the church among the people, and thereby extending the ordinances of salvation to them, allowing these people to take their first steps onto what President Nelson likes to refer to as the covenant pathway, making formalized promises with God that yoke themselves to him and give them full access to his transforming power. These sons of Mosiah will do this miraculous thing, as we're told in the middle of this chapter, in cities and lands that are now familiar to us, like Ishmael and Madonai, but amazingly also in the land of Shilom and in the land of Shemlon. So we'll come back to all of that. The take-home message, I think, for us is that this is what is happening in our dispensation as well. As we consider the scope and the breadth of the movement of our missionaries throughout the world, and as the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is established, thanks to civic and governmental leaders that are positively predisposed towards it, just like this great king of the Lamanites was. As this great church becomes established, by our modern-day sons, and we can add daughters of Mosiah, these saving and transformative ordinances are offered to people the world over whose deepest desire is to access the saving grace and transformative power of Jesus the Christ. Well, now for a look at the structure of this chapter, uh, we can see that in verses 1 through 3, This proclamation that was introduced in Alma chapter 22, verse 27, this proclamation is discussed more fully. We can see really that to use modern-day parlance, it is a proclamation of religious freedom. It protects the sons of Mosiah and their companions and allows them to go into homes and into synagogues throughout the Lamanite kingdom without being smitten or spat upon or cast out. And so the result is that in verses 4 through 7, the sons of Mosiah are able to actually establish churches throughout the Lamanite nation. Now, we had read previously that Ammon had already done so in the land of Ishmael. And so now, thanks to this proclamation, they're able to follow this pattern more broadly. This does not mean, of course, that the sons of Mosiah were equally successful in every Lamanite land and city. But we will learn in the next section, in verses 8 through 15, that there were many Lamanite cities, to use Mormon's verbiage, that were converted unto the Lord. These were not the Amalekite-dominated or Amulonite-dominated cities that we've read about previously, such as the city of Jerusalem. But we will in this section be given an accounting by city Uh, of those Lamanites that were converted unto the Lord. Once we are given this information, we find that in the final section of this chapter, in verses 16 through 18, that the king is desirous that his people are given a new name. I referenced uh, King Benjamin's address a few moments ago, and we can remember that the thrust of his message was to give his people a new name. In that case, it was the name of Christ, and this was a key part of the people's conversion and their covenant-making. That is also happening for the Lamanites here, no doubt, 
as they embrace the covenants and the ordinances that are implied with the formation of the church that was referenced earlier in this chapter. In this case, however, something more specific is happening or something different is happening where King Laman wants to dissociate the identify uh, the 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 identity of his newly converted people from the grievance narrative that has been passed down from one generation to another that has maintained and even widened the schism uh, between the Lamanites and the Nephites. We can see that he has this hope uh, when he changes their name because of what the name is, anti-Nephi-Lehi's. And again, we'll come back to the meaning of that and all that is implied with it. The very final thought in this chapter is expressed in verse 18 that says that the curse of God did no more follow these people. So I think just as a concluding thought after this introduction and after this flyover summary before we go into a reading of the chapter, is that one of the main purposes of this chapter, besides showing us that the formation of the church and the establishment of ordinances always seems to follow the conversion of the people of Christ, this chapter really shows us the scope and the breadth of what the sons of Mosiah have done. They have freedom of movement across the entire Lamanite nation. This really is an unimaginable outcome for us as we consider what we knew about the Lamanites when we read the Zenith account, and ultimately when we saw the relationship between his grandson, Limhi, and the Lamanites that surrounded his small vassal kingdom. Then we can even think farther back to Enos and his description of the Lamanites. How he said in verse 20 that the people of Nephi did seek diligently to restore the Lamanites unto the true faith in God, but then, as Enos says, our labors were vain, their hatred was fixed, and they were led by their evil nature that they became wild and ferocious and a bloodthirsty people, full of idolatry and filthiness. Then that verse ends with Enos saying, they were continually seeking to destroy us. So this chapter gives us cause as readers to rejoice greatly and to marvel that all these years later, this really could be happening, that the church itself is being established uh, across the Lamanite nation. It can really make us think about what is still possible in the world today. Now returning to verse 1 for a reading. Behold, now it came to pass that the king of the Lamanites sent a proclamation among all his people that they should not lay their hands on Ammon or Aaron or Omner or Himni, nor either of their brethren who should go forth preaching the word of God in whatsoever place they should be in any part of their land. Well, Omner and Himni are pulled into the story here. Uh, We haven't uh, been treated to any specific experiences uh, of Omner and Himni or of their words like we have for Ammon and Aaron. We're really not even sure where they have been during this time. But now we can see that after Ammon's conversion experience with this head of state in the land of Ishmael, or in other words, Lamoni, and then Aaron's incredible conversion experience with the king of the entire Lamanite nation, this head of state, we can see now that these four brothers are back together along with their companions, and they now have the thing that they probably envisioned in the very first place when they embarked upon their mission, 
which is free movement throughout the Lamanite kingdom. So that's what this proclamation is offering. Again, to use modern-day parlance, we can refer to this as religious freedom. Here's something from Gene R. Cook in a piece called Restoration of Morality and Religious Freedom. He said, Be an advocate for religious freedom and morality. This is a time when those who feel accountable to God for their conduct feel under siege by a secular world. You understand the moral principles that are under attack and the need to defend morality. Religious freedom all over the world is also under attack. It is important for your generation to become well-educated on this issue and assume responsibility for ensuring that religious freedom you have inherited is passed on to future generations. We must work together to both protect religious freedom and restore morality. Please understand this is not an effort to coerce religious belief. As John Locke asserted, religious worship does not have value unless it is voluntary. This is significant indeed because we can think about the authoritarian power that King Laman no doubt had. Yet now that he's converted, he is not using it to coerce. It's not surprising for us to see that a proclamation was issued throughout the land because we saw that Mosiah did the same thing several chapters back in the Book of Mormon narrative, and we saw that King Benjamin's words were published as well. But here is this autocratic, authoritarian king of the entire Lamanite nation that chooses not to foist or to force his newfound religion upon the people because he understands, as Gene R. Cook is expressing here uh, when he's actually quoting John Locke, that religious worship does not have value unless it is voluntary. This will help us to understand as this chapter goes on why it still could be that there are many Lamanites who chose uh, not to become converted. Verse 2, Yea, he sent a decree among them that they should not lay their hands on them to bind them, them, of course, being the sons of Mosiah and their companions, or to cast them into prison, uh, because that certainly had happened in the past. Neither should they spit upon them, nor smite them, nor cast them out of their synagogues, nor scourge them, neither should they cast stones at them, but that they should have free access to their houses and also their temples and their sanctuaries. Very interesting here that temples is mentioned among the edifices that the sons of Mosiah would have free passage in and out of in the Lamanite kingdom. And undoubtedly there is rich precedent for each of the things that are being spoken of here, uh, being bound being cast into prison, being spat upon, smitten, uh, being cast out or being scourged, or having stones cast at them. Uh, I'm, I'm certain that each of those things that were mentioned in the King's Proclamation had previously happened to the sons of Mosiah. And of course, we know that to be true, although uh, we don't, um, or we're not provided with stories that show that anyone was stoned. But we can guess that that and all of these other things did happen. Verse 3, And thus they might go forth and preach the word according to their desires, for the king had been converted unto the Lord and all his household. That's the same thing we read in the previous chapter, in Alma chapter 2, verse 23, where it says that uh, Aaron did minister unto them insomuch that the king's whole household were converted unto the Lord. Therefore, as verse 3 continues, 
He sent his proclamation throughout the land unto his people, that the word of God might have no obstruction, but that it might go forth throughout all the land, that his people might be convinced concerning the wicked traditions of their fathers, and that they might be convinced that they were all brethren, and that they ought not to murder, nor to plunder, nor to steal, nor to commit adultery, nor to commit any manner of wickedness. Here's something now from John Welch as we consider these three verses and think about the influence that this Lamanite king had upon his kingdom. Welch says, early in Book of Mormon history, King Benjamin set forth a five-part legal series prohibiting one, murder, two, plunder, three, theft, four, adultery, and five, any manner of wickedness. This five-part list, which first appears in Mosiah chapter 2, verse 13, uniformly reappears seven other times in the Book of Mormon. Uh, And here Welch says that it happened again in Mosiah chapter 29, in Alma chapter 23, which we've just read, also Alma chapter 30, then Helaman chapter 3, Helaman chapter 6, and Helaman chapter 7, and then interestingly in Ether chapter 8. Apparently, the Nephites viewed Benjamin's set of laws as a setting as setting a formulaic precedent. This is an opportune time as well to pause and to think about the foundation that's being laid here as all of these people are receiving the word from the sons of Mosiah and their companions throughout the Lamanite kingdom. This is really the foundation of a new nation and a new people. As the narrative will go on, they'll display incredible faith And we can remember that much later, as the narrative goes on, many of the sons of these Lamanites who are converted will constitute the armies of Helaman. Now verse 4, and in this section, where the sons of Mosiah established churches throughout the Lamanite nation. And now it came to pass that when the king had sent forth his proclamation, that Aaron and his brethren went forth from city to city, and from one house of worship to another, establishing churches and consecrating priests and teachers throughout the land among the Lamanites to preach and to teach the word of God among them, and thus they began to have great success. So again, this formula is being followed that we've read at other points in the Book of Mormon and particularly in the Book of Alma. We can see that this is what Alma was doing uh, once he left Zarahemla and went to, to many other cities. Uh, and, and we can notice, too, that he delegated and uh, gave this priesthood authority to others. And that's what's happening here too. The sons of Mosiah and their companions are certainly not keeping it to themselves, but they're anxious to uh, ordain these converted Lamanites to the very same priesthood so that they too have the ability to extend the saving power of Jesus Christ to those who are within their stewardship. Verse 5, And thousands were brought to the knowledge of the Lord, Yea, thousands were brought to believe in the traditions of the Nephites, and they were taught the records and prophecies which were handed down to the present time. This is truly a happy moment for us as readers. Here's something from the Book of Mormon Institute manual. The king of the Lamanites removed restrictions that had kept the gospel from being taught among his people, and the missionaries went forth preaching throughout the land. President Thomas S. Monson related a similar event as he described the circumstances surrounding the decision made by the government of the German Democratic Republic to allow missionaries to preach in that land after years of restricted church activity. Quote, Our ultimate goal was to seek permission for the doorway of missionary work to open. Elder Russell M. Nelson, Elder Hans B. Ringer, and I, 
along with our local German Democratic Republican Republic Church leaders, headed by President Henry Burkhart, President Frank Oppel, and President Manfred Schutz, initially met with State Secretary for Religious Affairs Kurt Loeffler as he hosted a lovely luncheon in our honor. He addressed our group by saying, We want to be helpful to you. We've observed you and your people for 20 years. We know you are what you profess to be, honest men and women. Government leaders and their wives attended the dedication of a stake center at Dresden and a chapel at Zwickau. As the saints sang, God be with you till we meet again, auf Wiedersehen, auf Wiedersehen. We remembered him, the Prince of Peace, who died on the cross at Calvary. I contemplated our Lord and Savior when he walked the path of pain, the trail of tears, even the road of righteousness. His penetrating declaration came to mind, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Then it was back to Berlin for the crucial meetings with the head of the nation, even Chairman Eric Honecker. We were driven to the chambers of the chief representatives of the government. Beyond the exquisite entry to the building, we were greeted by Chairman Honecker. We presented to him the statuette First Step, depicting a mother helping her child take its first step towards its father. He was highly pleased with the gift. He then escorted us into his private council room. There, around a large round table, we were seated. Others at the table included Chairman Honecker and his deputies of government. Chairman Honecker began, We know members of your church believe in work. You've proven that. We know you believe in the family. You've demonstrated that. We know you're good citizens in whatever country you claim as home. We have observed that. The floor is yours. Make your desires known. I began... Chairman Honecker, at the dedication and open house for the temple in Freiburg, 89,890 of your countrymen stood in line, at times up to four hours, frequently in the rain, that they might see a house of God. In the city of Leipzig, at the dedication of the stake center, 12,000 people attended the open house. In the city of Dresden, there were 29,000 visitors. In the city of Zwickau, 5,300 and every week of the year, 1,500 to 1,800 people visit the temple grounds in the city of Freiburg. They want to know what we believe. We would like to tell them what we believe in honoring and obeying and sustaining the law of the land. We would like to explain our desire to achieve strong family units. There are but two; These are but two of our beliefs. We cannot answer questions and we cannot convey our feelings because we have no missionary representatives here as we do in other countries. The young men and young women whom we would like to have come to your country as missionary representatives would love your nation and your people. More particularly, they would leave an influence with your people which would be ennobling. Then, we would like to see young men and young women from your nation who are members of our church serve as missionary representatives in many nations, such as in America, as in Canada, and in a host of others, they will return better prepared to assume positions of responsibility in your land. Chairman Honecker then spoke for perhaps 30 minutes, describing his objectives and viewpoints and detailing the progress made by his nation. At length, he smiled and addressed me and the group, saying, We know you. We trust you. We have had experience with you. Your missionary request is approved. My spirit literally soared out of the room. The meeting was concluded. As we left the beautiful government chambers, Elder Russell Nelson turned to me and said, 
Notice how the sunshine is penetrating this hall. It's almost as though our Heavenly Father is saying, I am pleased. The black darkness of night had ended. The bright light of day had dawned. The gospel of Jesus Christ would now be carried to the millions of people in that nation. Their questions concerning the church will be answered, and the kingdom of God will go forth. As I reflect on these events, my thoughts turn to the Master's words, In nothing doth man offend God, or against none is his wrath kindled, save those who confess not his hand in all things. I confess the hand of God in the miraculous events pertaining to the church in the German Democratic Republic. President Monson related all of that in a conference report in uh, April of 1989. His wonderful biography, To the Rescue, chronicles this uh, even further. It's also amazing to see that back in 1989, when uh, President Monson described this experience, that Russell M. Nelson was there with him on that occasion. And uh, now, of course, Elder Nelson has become the successor to President Monson as the prophet of the church. Now returning to the text, as we go to verse 6, we continue um, to appreciate what is happening here in this Lamanite kingdom. Verse 5 has just told us that thousands were brought to the knowledge of the Lord. And now verse 6 says, And as sure as the Lord liveth, so sure as many as believed, or as many as were brought to the knowledge of the truth, through the preaching of Ammon and his brethren, according to the spirit of revelation and of prophecy, and the power of God working miracles in them. Yea, I say unto you, as the Lord liveth, as many of the Lamanites as believed in their preaching, and were converted unto the Lord, never did fall away. The Book of Mormon Institute manual says it is remarkable that not one of the anti-Nephi-Lehi's ever left the church or became less active. President Gordon B. Hinckley has repeatedly stressed the importance of retaining recent converts. He has said there is no point in doing missionary work unless those converted stay active. Quote, With the increase of missionary work throughout the world, there must be a comparable increase in the effort to make every convert feel at home in his or her ward or branch. Enough people will come into the church this year to constitute more than 100 new average-sized stakes. Unfortunately, with this acceleration in conversions, we are neglecting some of these new members. I am hopeful that a great effort will go forward throughout the church, throughout the world, to retain every convert who comes into the church. This is serious business. There is no point in doing missionary work. Unless we hold on to the fruits of that effort, the two must be inseparable. President Hinckley said this on another occasion, Missionaries have a responsibility to those they baptize to help them be faithful and true, died in the wool Latter-day Saints with a conviction in their hearts concerning the truth of this great work. Do all you can to see that those whom you baptize are not baptisms only, but solid true converts to this church who will remain so. The Book of Mormon speaks of missionaries who taught so faithfully and so well that those they baptized never did fall away. Now that ought to be our standard and our motto. I don't believe there is any reason why a convert to this church should leave again in a short time. Here's a statement by President Ezra Taft Benson out of his book, A Witness and a Warning, that helps us to consider more broadly what what is happening here with the sons of Mosiah. Uh, He says, In the 20th section of the Doctrine and Covenants, the Lord devotes several verses to summarizing the vital truths which the Book of Mormon teaches. Uh, That specifically is in verses 17 through 36. It speaks of God, the creation of man, the fall, the atonement, 
the ascension of Christ into heaven, prophets, faith, repentance, baptism, the Holy Ghost, endurance, prayer, justification, and sanctification through grace and loving and serving God. We must know these essential truths. Aaron and Ammon and their brethren in the Book of Mormon taught these same kinds of truths to the Lamanite people who were in the darkest abyss. After accepting these eternal truths, the Book of Mormon states those converted Lamanites never did fall away. If our children and grandchildren are taught and heed these same truths, will they fall away? We best instruct them in the Book of Mormon at our dinner table, by our firesides, at their bedsides, and in our letters and phone calls, in all of our goings and comings. Now continuing in verse 7, For they became a righteous people. They did lay down the weapons of their rebellion, that they did not fight against God any more, neither against any of their brethren. Mormon is providing us with a bit of a teaser there as he says that they did lay down their weapons of rebellion. We'll read about that in great detail later when we move into Alma chapter 24. Of this verse, Elder David A. Bednar once said, to set aside cherished weapons of rebellion, such as selfishness, pride, and disobedience, requires more than merely believing and knowing. Conviction, humility, repentance, and submissiveness precede the abandonment of our weapons of rebellion. Do you and I still possess weapons of rebellion that keep us from becoming converted unto the Lord? If so, then we need to repent now. We'll see later that as these weapons of rebellion are represented by the swords of these people, that the the only way ultimately because of, of their habits of use, we might say, of their swords and their weapons of rebellion, their only way of abandoning them, or excuse me, their their only way of no longer using their weapons of rebellion is to abandon them and to bury them into the earth so that they no longer have access to them. So that's instructive for us inasmuch as we might have habits or tendencies that could be described as, as rebellious, that in our conversion process we might have to insulate ourselves from them and in our repentance process we might have to insulate ourselves from these weapons that we're accustomed to picking up and using. Now we'll read this section in verses 8 through 15. This will allow us to revisit cities that we have very recently been in as readers, but also it'll it'll jog our memories a bit, and we'll get to go back uh, and consider cities uh, from the time of King Noah and Limhi and Zenith. It's very exciting and almost unimaginable to see that people are being converted en masse in these cities as well, such as Shilom and Shemlon. So, verse 8, Now these are they who were converted unto the Lord. And now this accounting, city by city, of Lamanites who were converted follows. We wonder if truly everyone in the city was converted, or if just uh, a great many were. It's probably the latter. In any event, Mormon again says, These are they who were converted unto the Lord. Verse 9, the people of the Lamanites who were in the land of Ishmael. Now, of course, that's Lamoni. That's where Lamoni ruled, and those are his people. So that's the original group of people that were converted, that we read of. Verse 10, and also of the people of the Lamanites who were in the land of Madoni. Now, that's exciting to us because Madoni is the place where Aaron and his companions, such as Mulekai and Amma, were so poorly received that they were imprisoned and bound. That's the place that Lamoni and Ammon went to to free them. 
So now here we're finding that a great many, and at least a great many, of the people who lived in Madonai were converted unto the Lord. Verse 11, and also of the people of the Lamanites who were in the city of Nephi. We can assume then that that would be the very capital city of the land of Nephi, which was the capital land of the nation of Nephi. And so that's the miraculous thing that happened that we've read about very recently when Aaron went in unto the palace of the king. Now verse 12, and also of the people of the Lamanites who were in the land of Shilom. Now we haven't read that name for quite a while, but we can remember that the land of Shilom is where a lot of things happened previously. When Zenith was granted access to a portion of the land of Nephi, uh, when he went back, and then, of course, when his son Noah ruled, and then when his son Limhi ruled, although kind of only partially ruled as a vassal, it seems that their capital at this time was the land of Shilom. So that parallel kingdom of Nephites that we read about that were in the land of Nephi, that were kind of an island inside of the land of Nephi, well, that was happening in the land of Shilom. And uh, there's such a, an interesting similarity between the word Shilom and Shalom, the word peace, that we have to wonder perhaps if it's even close uh, by intention to the word Jerusalem. Now, we know uh, from reading recently that there was also a city that was expressly called Jerusalem. That's where Aaron first went in his mission. But the land of Shilom, in any event, is where so many interesting things happened that we've read about earlier. We know that once the uh, uh, Nephites escaped from that area, uh, thanks to Gideon's plan and Limhi's escape and led through the wilderness by Ammon, the earlier Ammon, uh, that then a vacuum would have been created in the city and land of Shilom, and then the Lamanites would have inhabited it. So it's these Lamanites who are now being converted unto the Lord. Now, as the verse continues, and who were in the land of Shemlon. Now, Shemlon, we might remember, is the land that the Nephites could see into because of the tower that was built by King Noah. So they would climb that tower. They could see over into the land of Shemlon, and that's where they could see that the Lamanites were preparing for war. So that's where we've heard of that city before. And now, amazingly, we're seeing that there are converts and many converts in the land of Shemlon. Then, a city I don't think we've heard of before, the city of Lemuel, and in the city of Lemuel, and in the city of Shimnalam, which I don't think we've read of before either. Verse 13, And these are the names of the cities of the Lamanites which were converted unto the Lord. And these are they that laid down the weapons of their rebellion. There's that phrase again. Yea, all the weapons of war, and they were all Lamanites. Now, sometimes the word Lamanites is used broadly to include anyone that lived within the Lamanite kingdom, including Amalekites and Amulonites. But here, uh, Mormon is making a distinction for us in verse 14. And the Amalekites were not converted, save only one. Neither were any of the Amulonites. So we, we know from previous chapters that when Aaron went into the city of Jerusalem, that that was an area that was largely controlled by the Amalekites and the Amulonites. We learned then that they were even a more hardened people than the Lamanites, and that they influenced the Lamanites that they lived among to be more hardened as well. So here we're discovering that they still did not convert. It says instead in verse 14, but they did harden their hearts, and also the hearts of the Lamanites in that part of the land whithersoever they dwelt, yea, and all their villages 
and other cities. It's a source of fascination to me that if there is any Lamanite city that we've read of so far that has something in common with these cities that we're reading about here and villages that are controlled by the Amalekites and Amulonites, it would have been the city of Ammonihah. Yet, it's the city of Ammonihah, even though it's more allied and aligned with the ideals of the Ammonites and the Amalekites and these more hardened Lamanites. It's the city of Ammonihah that is first destroyed. And we'll read in chapter 25 about the way in which the Lamanites um, mounted an offensive against the Nephites and how they destroyed the city of Ammonihah. So it doesn't seem to matter that the people of Ammonihah were so ideologically aligned, really, with these Amalekites and Amulonites. So it goes, it seems, with the followers of Satan and those who uh, carry the banner of the great and abominable church. Unity does not seem to be their salient characteristic. They ultimately preach divisiveness, and really they live divisiveness as well. So that's verse 14, and this accounting that we're seeing for Mormon here is the unit of accounting is cities, the entire city of Ishmael, Medoni, Nephi, Shilom, Shemlon, etc. Uh, and then we read about the Amalekites and the Amulonites, and still the unit is villages and cities. But there was one person, it says, and the Amalekites were not converted save only one. So to find any Amalekites that were converted, we have to go from the unit of city or village down to one single individual. So that shows just how pervasive and destructive the teachings of the Amulonites and Amalekites were. Verse 15, Therefore we have named all the cities of the Lamanites in which they did repent and come to the knowledge of the truth and were converted. That is a lot of people and a lot of cities across the nation of uh, the nation of Nephi, but in other words, the Lamanite nation. This is truly a miraculous occurrence. Again, I don't think we ever could have imagined this as readers, as we were reading Enos, as I mentioned earlier, and as we read the account of uh, Zenith, Noah, and Limhi. And then it was so shocking in Mosiah chapter 28 to discover that these sons of Mosiah actually wanted to go back into the land of Nephi. And now, here is the result. When we think of it that way and realize how unlikely this was, it helps us to understand why in a few chapters later in Alma chapter 26, there will be an entire chapter, I think it's 37 verses or 39 verses, that are dedicated to Uh, the wonder of it all, and that's when Ammon will glory in the Lord, and he'll be accused by Aaron of boasting. And truly, it's understandable, because as we consider the roughly thousand-year history of the Book of Mormon, this is a wildly incredible and unlikely occurrence that we're reading of right here. Now, in the final three verses of this chapter, we will read about the, the converted Lamanites and their name change, and their new relationship with the Nephites, which is an open correspondence. And then ultimately in verse 18, we'll read how the curse of God is lifted from among them. So verse 16, And now it came to pass that the king and those who were converted were desirous that they might have a name, that thereby they might be distinguished from their brethren. Therefore the king consulted with Aaron and many of their priests 
concerning the name that they should take upon them, that they might be distinguished. And it came to pass that they called their names Anti-Nephi-Lehi's, and they were called by this name and were no more called Lamanites. Well, that name is lots of syllables, and it doesn't roll off the tongue very easily. And the word anti that precedes Nephi and Lehi would immediately make us as English speakers think that it means against. Uh, That's the only way that we use that particular prefix. Here then is some commentary that gives us some um, more understanding with respect to the meaning of the name anti-Nephi-Lehi and also why this was done. First, the Book of Mormon Institute manual. The name anti-Nephi-Lehi could indicate the joining together of the descendants of Nephi and those who followed him with the posterity of Lehi. The name anti of anti-Nephi-Lehi may be a reflex of the Egyptian N-T-Y, which means he of or the one of. Thus, rather than having the sense against, it has the meaning the one of Nephi and Lehi. So that was written by Stephen D. Ricks. So he's showing us that we could kind of replace the word anti with of thee. It came to pass that they called their names of the Nephi and Lehi's. Uh, so this really, this renaming is a gesture of unity between these converted people and the Nephites, the other family or strain that has come from the seed of Lehi. Susan Easton Black has written this in her 400 Questions and Answers. Book of Mormon scholars suggested a variety of definitions for anti-Nephi-Lehi's. George Reynolds and Jane Sojal suggested that the word anti means a mountain or hill, and conclude that the name anti-Nephi-Lehi's may mean that they were located in a hilly or mountainous country, the land of Nephi and Lehi. Hugh Nibley suggests a Semitic and common Indo-European root corresponding to anti that means in the face of or facing, as of one facing a mirror, and by extension either one who opposes or one who imitates. Stephen Rick suggests the name anti of anti-Nephi-Lehi's may be a reflex of the Egyptian N-T-Y, he of, the one of. Thus, rather than having the sense against, it has the meaning the one of Nephi and Lehi. So as we consider this gesture by the king, we can see that it, it is probably a way of dispelling the notion among those that he has converted that the Lamanites have been wronged by Lehi and wronged by Nephi. Because, as we know, because we've read them, the scriptures teach otherwise. And so the king is dispelling this long-held grievance narrative that has been passed down from one generation to another in the Lamanite nation that they had been wronged. He's dispelling this. And, and he has discovered, along with those that have been converted, that this is actually not true. It's revisionist history that has been put in place by the adversary, really, that has kept the schism and the division alive between the Lamanites and the Nephites. But now, as this great king is teaching, they are all brethren. And so this name that he's choosing, saying that you are of Nephi and Lehi, anti-Nephi-Lehi's, we are all brethren, and we no longer accept this grievance narrative that we've been passing down from one generation to another. All of that is implied in this naming. Now, the final verse, 
Verse 18, And they began to be a very industrious people. Yea, they were friendly with the Nephites. Therefore they did open a correspondence with them, and the curse of God did no more follow them. So what amount of time elapsed here that uh, allowed them to open up a correspondence? It's hard to tell for sure. But this is a, a natural outgrowth of the attitude that is being shown in this renaming. And ultimately, as we'll read in subsequent chapters, it will lead to a joining together with the Nephites of these people. And we can see here that the curse that followed the Lamanites no longer followed them. That, of course, is another way of saying that the transforming power of Jesus Christ has fully reached this people on an individual level and on a collective level. And so we're reading the results of that now. And in fact, as President Benson has famously pointed out, the way that this society is changing is from the inside out. Uh, He once said, the Lord works from the inside out. The world works from the outside in. The world would take the people out of the slums. Christ takes the slums out of the people. And then they take themselves out of the slums. The world would mold men by changing their environment. Christ changes men, who then change their environment. The world would shape human behavior, but Christ can change human nature. This statement at the beginning of verse 18, that these began began to be a very industrious people, is uh, exactly the opposite picture that Enos was painting so long ago when he talked about the Lamanites being idle. McConkie and Millet have said that idleness is incompatible with the spirit of the gospel. The Lord's people have always been an industrious people, eager to improve their lot in life, eager to improve and develop the earth and take advantage of the blessings of this life. Now finally, for some summarizing commentary from Ogden and Skinner, those Lamanites who experienced such a profound change then desired and received a new name, Anti-Nephi-Lehi's. When any of us make life-changing covenants, we receive a new name. At baptism, we take the name of Christ. We note that righteousness also brings industriousness and a desire for peace. And now Ogden and Skinner will also discuss the meaning of this name, helping us one last time to consider this. The first part of the term anti-Nephi-Lehi's may be an integral component of the name title, not the Greek prefix meaning against. Some have also wondered if these righteous converts wanted to be identified as descendants of Lehi, but they were not descendants of Nephi. In other words, they were Lehites, but they were not Nephites, thus the name title the Lehi's or the Lehi's, the Lehites or the Lehi's, opposite or apart from the Nephites. So that's yet one more way of conceiving of this interesting name, anti-Nephi-Lehi's. We can consider Nibley's suggestion and Stephen Rick's suggestion that anti doesn't mean anti in the sense that it does to us today. Or we can consider it as meaning anti as it does today, but it only applies to the word Nephi. So in that sense, as Ogden and Skinner are saying, anti-Nephi-Lehi's could mean the same as saying non-Nephite-Lehites. In other words, we are of Lehi, but we don't come through Nephi. We come through another line. It's a way, really, of calling themselves Lamanites, without actually espousing that name because of all that it has applied and all the stain that that name has picked up. So that seems like a possibility as well. Well, now as we come to the end of this chapter, we just rejoice 
in the fact that so many thousands were converted unto the Lord as a result of the efforts of the sons of Mosiah. We'll have the pleasure again of considering the significance of that in Alma chapter 26. Our task, however, as we turn the page and go to Alma chapter 24 and then to Alma chapter 25, is to consider the effect that this will have upon those who were so violently antagonistic towards these new converts. And then, of course, we'll read in Alma chapter 24 how they responded and how they buried their weapons of war. So we have that to look forward to as we go into Alma chapter 24. But for now, this brings us to the end of Alma chapter 23. Thank you for listening to Come Follow Me, Deep Dive. I want to acknowledge the resources that have helped me prepare this and previous episodes of this podcast. Grant Hardy's Reader's Edition of the Book of Mormon has helped me with the sectional divisions in these chapters. Kelly Ogden and Andrew Skinner's verse-by-verse commentary on the Book of Mormon has provided me with rich commentary. I also want to acknowledge a new resource that I've used for the last few chapters, which is the Book of Mormon Study Guide, the revised edition from Thomas R. Valletta. Parallel passages of Scripture and general conference addresses that come to mind also play a prominent role in this podcast, as do my own thoughts and writings. For them and any errors that you find in them, I, of course, am solely responsible. I hope that this podcast has had the effect of drawing you to the scriptural text that is so rich with detail and generous with truths that can help us navigate through our own lives and, most importantly, draw closer to God in our study of His Word. So thank you for listening.